Ron DeSantis is Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids. We're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snaphook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla coming to you on a Tuesday night. Scott, it is Ryder Cup week. Uh, nothing sweeter to the to the ears of a golfer. Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. And, and kind of, you know, I was thinking about this. We were talking about it off air. It's almost like, you know, the old days, the uh, American League and National League All-Star game. You know, before they did the uh, the interdivision play, you know, because it was your first opportunity to see guys. And when I was growing up, the European guys pretty much stayed in Europe and the American guys stayed in, in the United States. And you'd meet for, you know, major championships. That was basically it. But now, you know, you got all that intermingling. So I don't know if it's as big a deal as it used to be, but it's still a big deal. Oh, it's, it's absolutely a big deal. Um, something that, I think every PGA tour or uh, I guess it's the, the DP world tour now, but you know, when you were growing up, it was the European tour. Um, but every one of those professional top level players dreams of representing their country. Uh, and until the last two Olympics, you know, golf was not an Olympic sport. So if you were going to represent your country in, in the game of golf, it was going to be, you know, either the Ryder cup or the president's cup uh, and the president's cup, came along much later that it doesn't have the same just level of tradition and history and, and pageantry that the Ryder cup does. Um, and, and man, it's, I, I think it's something that I, I personally look forward to um, maybe even more now as an adult than I, than I did as a kid, we were, we were talking off air about, you know, when I was growing up, team USA kind of got their asses kicked pretty regularly um, in the Ryder cup and, we did a lot better in the President's Cup, but but man, it seemed like every two years we just we just couldn't beat those pesky Europeans. But um, you know, I, I think where Team USA stands now is is just a complete one eighty. I think there I think there are ebbs and flows. It, it kind of you know I was comparing it to the uh, to the Major League Baseball All Star Game, and it's kind of a similar deal. I mean, I think the American League has been fairly dominant in recent times. 
but, you know, there were obviously times when the National League was better. And I think it's true in my youth when I was coming up in, say, the 80s and the 90s, uh, you know, the Americans were typically a lot more successful. Uh, and you had some big time, you know, big time guys, you know, playing at that time, like um, Curtis Strange, you know, you know, maybe like your Tom Kites of the world who are maybe not, you know, upper echelon, you know, historical players, but certainly, you know, did, held their own in, in the Ryder Cups back then. But I, I think you're right. I think the Europeans have definitely been, you know, the holding serve really well the last several times. And especially, you know, when I was my time period, I think of growing up, I'm thinking, you know, 14 through 21, 22 were really, you know, those prime junior golf years. Um, that's Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson time, right? Well, you know, Tiger was 13, 21, and 3 in the Ryder Cup, and, and Phil Mickelson is 18, 22, and 7. He was just, these are guys that everything about their game had to do with intimidation, and they just could not find a way to play well together. Whereas, you know, we had, I, I don't know how many times I had to see Ian Poulter just be buddy-buddy with everybody or Sergio or um, Lee Westwood or, or Colin Montgomery. Like, these guys just show up every every couple years. They're all best friends. They all go out and kick our ass, and then they go back home to Europe. Yeah, so if you look at uh, what's funny is I'm, I'm looking at a site right now that has ranked the top 10 Ryder Cup players in the history of, of the sport. And I don't know. I mean, it, I'll see what you think. Who do you think they have as the number one Ryder Cup player of all time? Uh, it's tough because it's so long. I, I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say Seve. Seve was on the list, but he was not their number one guy. Uh, so their number one guy actually was Nick Faldo. Okay. I mean, Faldo was ruthless. That's fair. So, you know, he, he uh, you know, dominated, you know, for a good 20-year period. Uh, number two guy all time, Sergio Garcia, another guy who's kind of from that 1990s to the aughts, you know, kind of time period there. Uh, you also had, you know, you had Jose Maria Oothobles also on that list. Absolutely. And what's funny is that those are guys, when you look at Sergio Garcia and Jose Maria Oothobles, they really haven't done all that well in major championships. Jose Maria uh, Fable is a master's winner, is he not? He is, but I'm talking about, you know, in terms of like a total career, you're looking at like, you know, three or four major championship victories. Whereas, I, I you know, that's for sure. Fair. Like you had like, the European team had was conti- uh, other than, you know, when Phil had it, but the mantle of best player to never win a major kind was, of seemed, was kind of seemed to be on the European team for a long time when you had Colin Montgomery and you had Sergio Garcia and you had Lee Westwood of all these guys that they talk about were distinguished and those, players. And that was, yeah. And those are guys that are all listed in that top 10. Um, and so when you look at, you know, and this is where the history of the, of the game, I think kind of comes in because you were mentioning, um, I don't know if you mentioned Tiger Woods, um, on air. I know you mentioned him off air and on air, record, I did say he's 13, 21 and three. And, and uh, Phil Nicholson, but, you know, guys like, you know, going to the history, Jack Nicholas was clutch in those Ryder Cups. Of course, I don't know what his competition was back in those days. So I it mean, used to be too, Scott, it used to be just uh, England, like the, you know, the United Kingdom versus America. And then 
it really did kind of get out of hand as far as the U.S. had won quite a few in a row and it wasn't as competitive. And that's when it became all of Europe. Uh, and then at that point, to say it was competitive would be an understatement, right? That's when you, you started seeing the ebbs and flows. And, and a lot of it goes into, you know, who's the best golfer in the world at that point? Is he an American or is he a European? Or, you know, but, um, you know, at the time when you when you had a Ryder Cup of, of Jack and Arnie on, on the same Ryder Cup and you had, you know, people forget people like Lee Trevino was 17, 7, and 6 in Ryder Cup play. Like, that's a major winner going out and putting up a fantastic record. There, there were times where the USA was just more deep, but late 90s through mid-2010s, it was all Europe all the time, minus, I think, maybe one. Yeah, so, you know, and Tom Watson's another guy, you know, who's a uh, you know big-time major big time player. player. terrible captain. Yeah, not, not, not a good captain, but, you know, he certainly, you know, fared really well in the British Opens, you know, over the course of his career. Absolute legend over there. Um, and when you think of the time of, of Nicholas, really, when you're looking at a foreign-born player, really Gary Player was really the only guy, you know, who was... <laughs> well, he's Australian. Competing. Exactly, but he's the only guy not from the United States who was really, you know, highly competitive until you got to Seve Ballesteros, and that would have been like the early 80s. Um, but I guess, you know, my question is, is that, you know, when you look at when you look at the Ryder Cup as an event, like which, are you a one-on-one guy where you like to see our best versus their best one-on-one, or, or are you kind of... Maybe are you more of like the four, uh, the four ball, you know, scramble or alternate shot kind of guy? Well, there's no scramble. There's two. There's, there's two the alternate shot. And there's two yeah. alt shots. I love alt shot. Absolutely love alt shot because I think it has the most strategy. Um, I mean, first, like I said, I, I love the event as a whole because I, I, I love the way that each session leads into the next right like because i love the singles pairings at the end Be- but it's because the intensity that comes with them right because like at any given point you could be the match that swings things in in the other way and and you're not going to get that if you played singles on thursday or friday right so so for that reason yeah. like singles is fantastic but i love all shot as an event because it is the hardest it is absolutely the most it is where the captains matter the most, right? Because pairings mean everything in that scenario where you got to put guys together that have games that complement each other or work together. Like I remember they, they put tiger, uh, it was tiger was with, um, guy was, uh, David Tom's. Right. And it was just like a terrible, it was a terrible matchup because like, you know, Tom's is now hitting from places on the course. He's not used to hitting from, Tigers having to play David Tom's weak ass drives. Like it was just not a good, it was not a good pairing. And so I love that actually involving the, the captain having to do a little strategy where, um, you know, four ball, it's not as, I don't know. There's definitely strategy in, in, in the vibe of the group and things like that, but you're still playing your own ball all the way through. Yeah. It's a best ball, you know, kind of, it's, it's not a scramble, but you know, more or less best score. Right, it's yeah. Have you ever done an alternating shot event? I've never done an event, but we do it uh, in the first tee. Um, 
every now and then to like kind of test the kids. So back in the day, the HGA used to do a father-son alternating shot. Oh, geez, that'd be rough. Well, let me tell you. So you know, my my dad and I actually, you know, when I say like both of us were in our prime, we're actually similar strikers of the ball, I would say. Um, my dad, and he would, and if you were listening, he would admit to this, was an absolute horrible chipper. Like he, he had the, the kind of Zorro thing going. I don't know if you kind of know what I'm, you know, describing here, you know, on the, on just the air. At it. Yeah. Kind of, you know, the, the quick, you know, boom, boom, boom. Um, but we were out at Cypress Wood doing this and, and we, after six holes, we were even par. I don't know how the hell we did it. And then we kind of fell out of our tree and probably shot like maybe like 88 or 89, um, but that's a tough event because you, you're right. You have to think your way through it because with, with my dad's chipping, you're like, kind of like, okay, so who do we want hitting the drive? Who do we want hitting the iron? You know, if somebody misses the green, you know, who would we rather have chipping? It would have been me, you know? So yeah, that it's, it, yeah, you're definitely right. You, you got to think your way through this. And, it, and it's in addition to the, you know, to the captains who putting those guys together, the players have to constantly think their way through that too. Uh, so I, I love that event. You know, the whole idea of a best ball, I mean, that's, I mean, it's kind of cool because you can go low, but yeah, I, I, the strategy of it, I, I love, I love alternating shot. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in the PGA tour, it's, it's basically a scramble, right? Like if one, if you know for sure one guy, is always going to have a safe shot, and you can just take that aggressive line. There was like a year where Bryson played with, uh, I think it was Scheffler, Scheffler's first year on the team, maybe. And, you know, Scheffler would put one out in the fairway, and then Bryson would hit just an absolute piss missile on the first hole uh, that really set the tone for the whole round last year, right? Where he knew, hey, Scotty's, Scotty's the best player in the world right now, and he's sitting in the middle of the fairway. Time for Big Daddy to let it rip. Um, and, and that's the benefit of that event, but it's still just, it doesn't have the same ebbs and flows, right? Because like, is there any, any worse feeling as a golfer than, than putting one deep in the trees and knowing like, ah, I don't even have to go hit that one. I just set my partner up for the shit like that. That's what adds into it too. Is like, anytime you make a mistake, like you're, you're, you're fucking somebody else. Like you're not doing it to yourself. You're, you're doing it to tiger. <laughs> like I, tiger's got to hit this bunker shot now. Not me. The most fun. I, we, we used to go to the Houston open every year. And this is obviously this is not Ryder cup related, but I remember one year it was just, it was a washout. I think there were Thursday, Friday and Saturday it rained. And so they were just like, screw it. We're not, you know, you're not going to have a champion this year, but they, the course is open on Sunday. So they're like saying to hell with it. Let's run a Florida scramble. So each threesome is now a scramble team. No money. So these guys, what was fun was like they were playing out at, um, they are playing out at TPC in those days. And I remember watching a group, three guys hit, I mean, I was thinking it was a foursome, three guys hit on the green, one guy hit in the bunker. They're like, no money. We're going to hit it out of the bunker. So that's what they did. You know, so, you know, you're watching pros, you know, you're watching them hitting amazing golf shots out of the bunker. You know, that, that was a fun watch. And, and 
kind of, you know, where I'm going with this is the Solheim Cup is occurring right around the same time. And I saw this suggestion on X slash Twitter the other, uh, the other day of why not have it happen at the same time on the same course? You know, and, and so because they're saying like, you know, at the most you have four holes occupied, you know, at one time, you know, so you do it, you double it. That's eight holes. I mean, so look at what you're maybe doing. You know, you might be getting double the crowds, maybe. Uh, and you could have and some a better TV product, right? Like, I think the thing that with, with the Ryder Cup is it's not always a great TV product. I think it's a phenomenal event. But as you said, it's what, four four groupings? So there's not a ton of action. So imagine you can you can have more shots. Like, when there's a PGA tournament, you've got 104... 44 different players to rotate through throughout the day. And the Ryder Cup, you've got 22. So there's a lot of standing around. There's a lot of showing guys watch it, walking. There's a lot of kicking it back to the booth. There's a lot of interviews. Why wouldn't you want to fill that time with with more golf? Well, and, and think about what you know people say about the women's game. They people say, "Well, they don't play as hard of courses, or they they tee it off on the front tees, or you know they're just not quite as good. They can't hang." So let's have the same course. Let's see what happens. And you could have, you know, I think you mentioned this in chat, you know, but we can bring it here to the you know to the listening audience. You mentioned the idea of doing some you know mixed doubles. You know, maybe not on the, the actual, you know, do it more like a pro-am, you know, how you always used to have those, you know, before the tournaments. But, yeah, do it. You know, on, you're going to do them practice rounds anyway. Do it on Tuesday. Get the, get the competitive juices flowing, uh, you know, straight up men and women's alternate shot or, or however you want to do it, right? But I'd love to see that. I would love to actually see some events that actually count, though. I mean, I think that would be, that would be neat. Um, there's, a mixed, there's a mixed PGA Tour event. Uh, that's going to be there this year. Um, but I'm, I'm with you. I'd like to see as, as a guy who I work with a lot of girls in the PGA tour. I mean, on the, uh, the first tee and, and you know what? I, I was with one today. She's working her tail off to try and make the high school team next year. Just as hard as any boy that's out there. If not, if not harder than most of the guys that are out there, why, why is her effort or her, desire less important because it's not right it's still the game of golf we're still sitting there working on her swing just like i would work on a, on a, a another boy's swing it's still the same thing and she deserves the same uh you know level of coverage and reward and whatever it is when if and when she gets to that point and you know they host a lpj event right down the street from my house and man it was disappointing two years ago to go see how they how they treated those girls it was I got, we had more pomp and circumstance at high level HGA events than they had out there. They had a guy in a in a Magellan fishing shirt and cargo pants go with with not even a uh, you know electric megaphone. One of the ones that you just is open, you know, just giving names out. Like that was the first tee. It was it was awful. Yeah, I remember. And I mean, when I went to college, you know, my roommate, my my roommate for orientation, he's now the head golf coach at Texas Tech. So. You know, and he was, you know, my main deterrent from trying out for the college golf team because I was like, hey, I'm about an eight. And he's like, yeah, I'm a one. You're just like, screw you, dude. But I remember running, uh, remember meeting, you know, somebody on the girls team. She would absolutely kick my ass all over a golf course. Um, and so, 
it's, you know, it, it's just one of those things. It, it would be entertaining. You know, you, you would have, you would have more events, you would have more golfers. Uh, and it's really the, the women's game needs to get pumped up because there are some absolutely terrific players that would kick our ass up and down a golf course every day of the week. There was, so my, one of my high school teammates, uh, David Kelly is a caddy on the LPGA tour. Uh, and he caddies for a player, Charlie Hull. And, and I bring this up cause she got into it with somebody on Twitter who was trying to talk shit and said, uh, you know, play us from the same tees and I'll beat them. And she's like, let's go. Anytime, anywhere, put your money down. I'll come play you. Um, and I, I would have loved to see that. Just this guy's like, I'm a five handicap. I could beat an LPJ player. I'm a one. I'm a one handicap. I could not beat an LPJ player. I couldn't do it. Could absolutely not do it. You know why? Because they're professionals. They're professionals. I, I remember when I was growing up, um, I was like maybe 16, 15, 16. And when we were on vacation... Um, we had a timeshare. And so we saw the same people every year. And one of the girls was a college basketball player. And I played basketball. We were, you know, playing one-on-one. It's a close game. I lost. Like, you know what? Whatever. She's like four years older than me. She plays college ball. I had no shame about it. I'm walking back up to my room and my dad's sitting there on the balcony just shaking his head. I'm like, what's wrong? Like, How could you lose to her? I'm like, what are you talking about, man? She's a college athlete. No big deal. And he's like, aha, I could beat Cheryl Swoops if I had to. <laughs> I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? I've never forgot that. But there's no way in the world that my 45-year-old father with a bad back was going to take down Cheryl Swoops. Just like there's no way I'm taking down Michelle Wee. There was no way a 25-year-old me with a good back was going to beat Cheryl Swoops. In no. Time. I mean, not even when she was pregnant, she could still probably take us. I mean, there's no way. Well, and that was and that was a funny thing. See, I grew up. My my sister is four years older than I am, and she was a college athlete. Uh, she played. Uh, she played college volleyball, but she was also. Yeah, you know, she was also playing basketball as well. Now we we would play one on one. I wasn't beating her. That wasn't happening. Now I could sit there and say it's because she's older. No, it's because she's, you know, she's a better athlete as far as far as that's concerned. I mean, I was faster, but she had more skills. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, and we've we've played pickup volleyball games over the years. I don't play nearly as much uh, as I used to, obviously. But uh, when I was in my twenties, I'd play. You know, we'd play against each other, and she'd beat me every time. I mean, it just like a drum. Well, speaking of, of getting beaten like a drum, um, you know, do we do we want to even touch on on any uh, thoughts for for the Ryder Cup, Scott? Any predictions? Does Team USA, um, you know, find a way to beat Europe like a drum, like they did in the last Ryder Cup, or do you think maybe this one's a little bit closer after some would say Liv has has weakened Team USA with with guys like Bryson and, and Patrick Reed? Uh, no longer on the squad. I, this is going to make me sound un-American, but I'm leaning Europe. Um, I just think they, they there's too many good guys over there. I mean, um, and especially, you know, you were mentioning it whenever they expanded the field, you know, to go beyond just Great Britain. I mean, 
you got John Rom from Spain. I mean, you've got, you know, all, you know, you got good golfers. Obviously you've got, you know, Rory from England and, or I guess he's technically from Wales, but you know, it's, it's all Great Britain. They're all one big happy family, but I think there's just too many good guys over there. Um, and I think the problem is, is that, you know, your Americans that you're, you're counting on, as you've pointed out, some of them just haven't done well in that environment. I don't think you're wrong, right? You're losing a lot of experience with I, – I, I don't like Patrick Reed. And this is one of the reasons the Ryder Cup is, is crazy because now I'm rooting for a guy like Patrick Reed. But at the end of the day, I think you know as much hate as the team got for bringing a guy like Justin Thomas on with maybe the poor season that he had, um, that's why you bring him on, right? Because there is some some fresh meat on this on this team or there is some, some guys who aren't maybe playing their best and – how many years in a row has, has Ian Poulter showed up not in his best form and then just, you know, gone balls crazy in the Ryder Cup? That's just what some of these guys do. And I, and I think Justin Thomas has a chance to be that guy for Team USA. You've got that that mega pairing of Thomas and Spieth that just seems to go out and wreck shop every time it's out there. Um, you know, Scheffler's putter is in shambles. I'm a little worried about that. You know, the guy is as solid tee to green as any player in the world but he just can't seem to make putts. Um, so that definitely scares me. You know, Morikawa, another guy that could can strike it as well as anybody, but is just so streaky with that flat stick. Um, and then on the other side of things, you're right with, with Team Europe, with with guys, you got two big guys up there with Rom and Rory. You know, that's a lot of talent that you've got to, that you've got to look after. There's some young, there's some young up and comers on that European Ryder Cup team. And I think a lot of, People are overlooking, uh, you know, Victor Hovland playing as good of golf as anybody heading into the PGA Tour break. So, yeah, Scott, I, I think it's going to be a lot closer than than maybe a lot of people anticipate at the end of last Ryder Cup. I think people are ready to crown Team USA for the next five or six year, you know, Ryder Cups with how much young up and coming talent was on that team. Um, you know, but now looking back at it, some of those guys are are live. Some of those guys have just fallen off and aren't playing as good a golf, you know, a la Matthew Wolf. Um, you know, and it's just a different environment. Those captains picks I think are fascinating. Um and, and to see how both captains, you know, handle it every time around because, you know, that's the that's the question that you always want to ask is like, you know, who are you taking? Are you taking somebody who historically has been good, who's maybe not having a good year? Or do you take somebody who you think, hey, they're hot now. You know, maybe I want to, you know, take these guys. And, and it's hard. It's like anything else. It's like, you know, when you're watching, you know, the NBA or you're watching, you know, baseball, you know, would you rather have, you know, the team that's been, you know, steady and good all year? Or would you rather have that team that for some reason seems to be able to turn it on at the right moment? I mean, some of those guys you mentioned, they – they have that ability just to, you know, pull great rounds out of their butt when they haven't been playing good golf the whole year, seemingly. Uh, certainly, Justin Thomas is on that list. You know, uh, I don't know who would be the equivalent on the European side, but, you know, that that's always a tough call, and that's where the captains kind of make their money or lose their money, so to speak. Yeah, and I think, man, this is, this is one that Zach Johnson, it, it's either going to go down as – make or break for this guy because this team is littered 
with captain's picks that, um, you know, could be deemed as questionable. You've got Justin Thomas. You've got Ricky Fowler, who, yeah, he played some good golf, but he also, you know, has a record of Ryder Cup disappointment. He, you know, there were some other guys who maybe were playing better golf at the time, like a Keegan Bradley. Um, but, you know, you've got, you know, a guy like Max Homa, who I love Max Homa. Uh, he was great in the President's Cup last year, but this, you know, this guy that's completely untested. He he took Brooks Kepka as a a captain's pick as well. You know, this is the only live guy to make the um to make the team. He had a good first two majors of the season, not so great in the last two, and then another guy who's an automatic qualifier too of of Harmon. This is his first Ryder Cup. You know, he's kind of just burst onto the scene and, and start him, but he's also a guy who's kept his card for what, 15, 16 years with, without winning really. And so, um, you want to talk about mental fortitude. That's, that's pretty mentally strong to be able to make it through that kind of career, but you've also haven't been in the spotlight much too. So I don't know, man, it's, I, I don't think you're wrong to think team Europe's in a good position when you look at how they're ranking the, the players, the top three ranked players are are McElroy, Hovland, and and John Rom. So, you know, four and five are American, six is Fleetwood, seven Shoffley, eight Fitzpatrick, nine Kepkas. Um, you know, if you look at the top ten, it's six four. We'll see what happens. You gotta tee it up. Um, it is in Europe, and Team USA has not won in Europe in a long time. I will say this, and I think you, you made a great point about the, the uh, impact of live on this event, which, you know, after they've, I guess, you know, we'll, we'll call it a merger. I wonder if things uh, for the next Ryder Cup, you know, to 2025, kind of return back to what we've seen the last, you know, few years with the Americans kind of making that comeback. Because, you know, now I think, you know, if I'm and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the, the live guys will be a part of the world ranking system moving forward. So, you know, it looks like, you know, the qualifying will kind of return back to what we knew before live, you know, was a thing. Yeah. And I'm just curious too, about the captains, you know, like a guy like Poulter or Westwood, you know, are, are they going to get a, now an opportunity to be a captain? Because I'd like them to be, you know, when you look at, as you had that history of Ryder Cup players, right? Those are two of the top 10 Ryder Cup players of all time. And, you know, to not see them as captains would be disappointing. But, you know, we'll see what happens, Scott. As we see, they got to tee it up. They got to play it. I am I think I'm going to take USA to uh, not just retain, as, as Europe did in the Solheim, but I think they're going to win it. I think it'll be close. I think it'll come down to the final three matches, I think Morikawa will close it out playing in that third to last position. That's bold. I think it'll be close. Uh, I'm, I will take Team Europe, even though it makes me anti-American. Uh, but I, I, th- I think I do agree with you. It's, it's going to come down to those last few pairings. Well, Scott, we got a chance to watch just the the blossoming of a young quarterback on Sunday with the Texans. And I know we didn't originally, you know, want to talk too much about it, but I, I just can't get away from 
how wrong we were. I just want to take a moment to to sit here and talk about we were gung ho on Bryce Young. I I was you can go back and listen and say and hear me say if we didn't get Bryce Young, I'd rather just wait to get Caleb Williams next year. But man, does CJ Stroud look good? He looks poised. He looks like a guy that you can build a culture around, not only a a uh, you know a season or a team, but this guy looks like the the first one in, last one out kind of quarterback that the Texans have have been really looking for. Yeah, and I, I was trying to struggle because um, I know I'm going to have to answer this question later on this week, but I was trying to think of the quarterback that he reminds me of, and actually. I'm I'm going to say Drew Brees because you know Drew Brees was not did not have the strongest of arms. Uh, Drew Brees is not terribly athletic. I mean, he could run when he needed to, but Drew Brees was an absolute demon when it came to ball placement, and that's where Stroud is. I mean, Stroud is not only completing you know about two thirds of his passes he's putting it in positions where those guys can make runs after the catch. And that's where, you know, and in fact that, that first long ball, to tank Dell, I haven't seen a deep pass from a Texan quarterback that good since shop. I mean, I don't know that Deshaun Watson ever threw a deep ball like that. Um, certainly don't think any, like your Brock Osweilers or Actually, any of those guys. To be fair, Brock Osweiler threw one perfect deep ball in his entire career with the Houston Texans, and Will Fuller dropped it in a playoff game against the Patriots. But other than that, you're right. He has not thrown any good balls. But I remember the one good ball that fucking Brock Osweiler threw, Will Fuller dropped it in the end zone, and it was over at that point. I do remember that play. Now that she mentioned it, but uh, um, that, was a, tried, that was a good ball. That was. I tried was, to forget. I tried to forget, but uh, you know, it, it was funny. But, is it crazy though? Is it crazy to think he's? I see McNabb, like, because I think he's a little more athletic than Breeze. Yeah, um, I could, I you could, know, yeah. he just he just is gritty, right? Like, this is a guy that I feel like the Eagles fans booed McNabb when when he was drafted, and he just had that chip on his shoulder of "I'll show you." And and I and I feel like CJ has had you know he talked about his struggles growing up. He talked about how long it took him to get the starting job at Ohio State. This is a guy that nobody wanted at number one. It was CJ, it was Bryce Young all the way, and, and now here he is. You know he might come out of this as as the guy of this draft. What I what I would compare him to, not stylistically, but what I would compare him to in terms of like him coming not out of nowhere but unexpectedly is to Justin Herbert. Uh, because you remember Justin Herbert, um, he did not start that first game, but Tyrod Taylor ends up getting hurt. Justin Herbert takes over. He got and, sabotaged, the deflated and, lung from the team yeah, doctor. And, uh, and, you know, from the beginning, Justin Herbert was nails. Now, Justin Herbert doesn't win as many games, but that, that you know, a lot of that is just some bizarre coaching decisions that that guy makes. Like, even in this last game, they went for it from their own 24. When they're up, you're like, what are you doing against the Vikings? And they needed a late interception, which was, you know, just an absolute stupid play on the Vikings part in order to win that game. So, but I think in terms, and this is the one of the points I made in one of my Battle Red Blogs articles, is that with the exception of Josh Allen, really your, your franchise quarterbacks, you know, 
pretty much almost immediately. You can watch him and almost immediately from jump, you could sit there and go, yeah, he's got it. Or no, no, he doesn't got it. Um, Trevor Lawrence, you know, although if you want to excuse his rookie year because of Urban Meyer, but even then, you know, Trevor Lawrence has moments where he looks really good and moments where it's like, you were the first overall pick. Really? Um, but yeah, I think Stroud just from jump has been that guy. I mean, he still has some things he needs to, to learn and to grow from, but I, I've loved what I've seen so far. I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. And gosh, just got me excited. Got me excited. And can't say I've been excited as a Texans fan in a long time because yeah, we won a couple games last year, but like the vibe was just different on those wins. It was like, Oh, how'd we win that one? Oh, squeaked, squeaked a win out there. They must've turned the ball. You know, there was no way we went out and won it where, um, man, I feel like we could scheme up wins now. You know, there are some obviously some crazy things that went our way. You don't you don't see a fullback taking a squib kick for a touchdown very often. Um, but you know what? That was almost more like a cherry on top, right? Because we win without that score, regardless, based on everything else that happened. And and the thing is, we're doing this with with four of our five offensive linemen missing. Uh, we haven't had both of our starting safeties at any game this season. We've we've had just one for the first half of a game. And then we had Jimmy Ward last week. So this will be the first week, hopefully where we get both of the safeties that was supposed to be a strength of this defense that we haven't even seen yet. Um, you know, I liked what, I liked what, what Miko schemed up last week. You know, I, I love the defense that he called. Um, I think Slowick is kind of starting to call a better game on offense. You know, the first couple games, I get it. You know, you want to run the ball. You got a rookie quarterback. You're trying to protect him. But, you know, as you said, right, like when you realize like this guy's the real deal, like obviously we're not going to sit back and throw it 60 times. Okay, I get it. But you know what? Let let your gunslinger go make some plays. Um, and you're And you're finding out we have some playmakers on this team. You know, looking back on it, you were right on Nico Collins, Scott. You know, going into the season, you mentioned this was a guy that, that you really had high hopes for. And, and man, he's looked good. I'm going to go ahead and say I'm right about Tank Dell. Uh, you know, I, I had eyes on him before the draft. And, yeah. and this is a guy who's explosive um, and just loves the city of Houston, right? Like you can see the way that he interacts with, with Mr. and Mrs. McNair after the game, how happy he was that he got to stay home, went to college here, and, and then gets the opportunity to stay in front of the same fans that literally love this guy. You know, there's, there's no... UH Cougar who has a negative thing to say about Tank Dell because that guy laid it on the field his entire college career for us. And I guarantee he's about to do the same thing for this Houston Texans team. So man, there's a lot to be excited for again. Uh, 2-0-2-0. I, I hate that. I say it like that, but I feel like I'm saying it slower than I need to be, but not playing slow on defense. That guy, will we get him in the fifth or sixth round and, and to have, that yeah. immediate impact on defense, you know, he's he's been fantastic. Um, yeah, I I I am very very excited for this team, Scott. One of the things, and if you, I invite everybody uh, to go, you know, take a look at Battle Red Blog, and one of the things we do every game is the Hair of the Dog feature, which is kind of like a Mister Science Theater three thousand kind of look at the game, but really it it takes our thoughts real time 
And I think that, you know, we are collectively living through Bill O'Brien PTSD. Because, you know, think about when you watched a Bill O'Brien game, even when we're winning, you're barely holding on to win and you're hoping for something stupid on the other side. Get up and in so, the first half and then just start running the ball in the second yeah, half. Yeah. The defense can hold on. Or you're hoping that, you know, your your quarterback can play hero ball and make a play late. And, and it, I still remember just, when we were playing Kansas City in the playoffs and we were up, was it like 28 6 or whatever? 27 it was? nothing, I think. I, I had a bad feeling in my stomach. Oh yeah, even up that right. Like, what other oh, yeah. what other team in the league doesn't feel good up twenty seven nothing in a playoff game? And I'm just like, this just doesn't feel good. Something yeah. feels off. No, and and that's what we were talking about in the hair of the dog feature this whole game, because we were like, okay, here come the Jags now, especially with that Dell touchdown late when it was uh, I think what was it. 27-17 at that point, you know, and you're thinking it's third down. Oh, crap, here it comes. We're going to give the ball back to them. They're going to score a touchdown. We're going to have to sweat this thing out. But, no, this team kept making plays. So, you know, Bobby Slope dials up, you know, a perfect play in that moment. I, I don't know, you know, if it's just a brilliant play call or if the Jags defense just a major screw up to leave them that open. Don't really particularly care though. Yeah, this is a, this is a team that just kept coming, and that's that's what we want to see. Is we want to see a team that's just going to keep coming after you, is going to stay aggressive, uh, is going to do the things. And and I and Bobby Sloak to me is your kind of unsung hero because I mean to me it was obvious you didn't want to run the ball because this team can't really run the ball right now with the offensive line it has, so he didn't. You know, he, he started off with the short passing game and that eventually opened up some runs for Pierce. Although to me, that two yard run he had late in the game, you know, right before the Dell touchdown where he broke like, I don't know, about 27 tackles, you know, behind the line of scrimmage to get two yards. And it's like, I mean, I think everybody on Jacksonville's defense had a shot at him on that play and he still gained two yards. I mean, that is Damian Pierce this year. Because yeah, a, lot of, a lot of people are, sledding. You know, a lot of people are looking at him like, why is he averaging two yards a carry? And it's like, there you go, folks. I mean, that you know, take a look at that play. And then he gain, can, turns around, gains five, where he gives you a third and three, where you could conceivably run it out of third and three. And I think that's why what happened to Jacksonville is they probably tried to stack the box. And here comes, you know, Tank Dell down the sideline, wide ass open. And, you know, those are plays that Davis Mills wouldn't make. Those are calls that, you know, Tim Kelly and and Pep Hamilton wouldn't have called. They would have sat there and said, we're going to run it right up the gut. We're going to gain two yards, then we're going to punt. That that would have been. But we're going to milk some time off the clock in the process. uh, Maybe they'll burn a timeout. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. I don't know where this team, you know, that's that's kind of the interesting conversation this week is, you know, does this team have a chance to win the AFC South? And and I don't know if they do. I don't know if there's enough talent there. Um, I, I, you know, I think, you know, when they talked about, like, say, Juice Scruggs, like some people have kind of said he might miss the first eight weeks. But Jared, Jared Patterson's been okay at center. Um, that whole right-hand side of the offensive line has been okay. You got Shaq Mason, obviously a veteran at guard. Um, George Fant has been a veteran starter in this league. So, you know. Kendrick Green's been awful. 
Oh yeah, left guard. And so what you might see is you might see Jarrett Patterson be the center of the whole year and Juice Scruggs become your left guard when he gets back and healthy. Yeah, or or Patterson to guard and and, and uh, Scruggs to center. Either way, I'm I'm fine with that. And just man, could you imagine once we get some protection for this for this quarter for CJ well, Stroud? I mean, it's going to be you, now you can run some boots. Now you can now the 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 run game's a little bit more believable because when you watch, I, I don't know how much San Francisco's 49ers football you watch, but my wife will tell you she's a Niners girl. You know, she her dad's from San Francisco. She grew up watching them. So we watch a lot of Niners football. They don't they don't let off the gas, right? Like they they'll drop 30, 40 points on you if that's what you're allowing them that game. It's on you to stop them. Whereas like you said with Bill O'Brien, hey, let's save some points for next week, okay? We can we can get out of here. A 3-point win is is as good as a It's an 8 20, It's an 8 yeah, league, Tim. It goes back to, you know, remember when when Brian T Smith was was trying to get on him because like the last game of the season in, in Tennessee one year, like they really didn't try because they found out at halftime they already won the AFC and it didn't matter. AFC so South they, champions, yeah, Brian. He, he kept telling, doesn't matter, Brian, AFC South champions. Doesn't matter, Brian. And it's just like, you know what? Like at the time we all thought it was hilarious. Like, yeah, fuck you, Brian. But like looking back on it, it's like that was the Bill O'Brien attitude, right? I don't it know. Was, it was good enough. We don't need to. We don't need to drop this many points. We can just run it and get out of here. And why do we need to? Why do we need to light up the scoreboard? That's not. That's exposing us too much. Well, you know what's funny is, and I don't know. You you might be aware of this stat. Uh, what was amazing about San Francisco last year is that San Francisco opponents were zero and sixteen the week after they played San Francisco. I think that's right. I mean, they may have maybe one or two odd wins, but you know that's a team that is beating you up and is causing a hangover. And you know, and, and really, the offense is so simple. I mean, they run; they don't run very many plays. They run it from a ton of formations, is what they do. And so, you know, that's you know, I love the idea of sitting there saying it's like it's like playing. Remember the Titans, right? Where he's like, "We got four plays and we're going to run them well." Well, but the whole thing is like, if if you do something well, do it. I don't yeah. care what the defense is doing against me. If I, if I'm good at this, you know, if C.J. Stroud is a top ten quarterback, you know what? Let's fucking go. Let's not you know sit there and go like, "Well, they're going to do this." No, you dictate. On both offense and defense, you dictate the action. That's how you win in this league. Absolutely, Scott. And, you know, speaking of dictating the action, you know, the Astros had a huge opportunity, as you say, dictate the action uh, in the AL West. They were in the driver's seat. You had two of the worst teams in baseball filling up your schedule for the last week and a half. And they have absolutely shit the bed at home. You know, it took a, a masterful start from Justin Verlander Monday night to maintain your lead in the wild card. And, you know, you brought up a, a question today in, in the pregame chat was, you know, would I rather this team squeak in as a wild card and, and maybe make another ALCS, but it means Dusty coming back? Or, you know, would I would I rather win, you know, miss the playoffs altogether and it means we start fresh with no Dusty next year? Um, I mean, obviously, I want to make the playoffs, right? Like, I want to try and 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 if we're in the ALCS, that means we have a chance to make the World Series and repeat because it means we got hot. 
I, I just, I am so over Dusty though. Like the fact that I even have to think about that for a second um, is frustrating as a, as a diehard fan, because this team shouldn't be in this, shouldn't be in this situation. This is, it's egregious that, you know, a roster that is, is, is stacked with talent that it is right now. And that has the horses doesn't play those horses. And um, you know, and, I don't know. The off season was frustrating, but but the way Dusty has managed this team has been more frustrating, and it it it, it makes me wonder: is is he the worst in game decision maker that the Astros have ever had? Because you brought up you brought up some names, I brought up some names, and and Phil Garner and and Cecil Cooper, uh, but you mentioned Art Howe. Um, I, I don't know. You know, to me, some of the things Dusty does is inconceivable. In, in the world of statistics and sabermetrics that we live in, everything's at your fingertips. I just, I wonder, has there ever been in your mind someone who who's done it worse than Dusty? Oh yeah, I'd have to say I, I, I had to think about that a long time, folks. I'm sorry for the uh, the stall there. The guy that drove me nuts was Terry Collins. Uh, Terry Collins was the manager of the Astros before Larry Durker came on the scene. Um, and he was a manager of the Mets later on. So I know, I think, Tim, you might be familiar with him as a manager, just not a manager of the Astros. Um, the guy that came to mind is this little Italian guy, John Cangelosi. His on-base percentage in Houston was over 400. That's a guy you put in the lineup every night. If you give me somebody with an over 400 on base percentage, let's go. I don't care what position he plays. Let's go. That guy's in your lineup every night. And Terry Collins actually said, without any tinge of irony, all he does is get on base. Uh, yeah, Terry. That's kind of the name of the game of baseball. Right, yeah. they, they made the whole point of Moneyball was uh, what's Seth, uh, what's his face's character going? All he does is get on base, and it's a positive thing, right? Like, uh, yeah, get from super bad. He literally all he does is get on base. Like that's and he's like that's why we get that guy. Well, and and so Terry Collins was a manager before the whole Moneyball thing came out. So we know, and this is where my argument was for Dusty during our chats because. For two reasons. Number one, we have more information available to us now, 2023, than we did in 1996 when Terry Collins was last manager of the Astros. We knew some things. I mean, uh, you know, Bill James had been writing for 20 years at that point. So we definitely knew some things. But I think inside the game of baseball, they weren't ready to acknowledge those things yet. Um, The guy who, you know, it's all the the decisions around why I'm not going to play Chaz McCormick or why I'm not going to play Yiner Diaz. It's a different excuse almost every night. Uh, And when you, when I brought, when I was thinking of Phil Garner, the Phil Garner I remember was a guy who I disagreed with, but at least he brought the same consistent reasoning to the table. The reasoning was wrong. But it was still, you know, he believed it. 
And so to me, it's, it's worse to sit there and have this. I'm just not going to play this guy. Chas McCormick reminds me of Bobby Gritch. I mentioned this to you. Bobby Gritch uh, played for the Baltimore Orioles and the then California Angels. His career was relatively short. He only played about maybe 13, 14 years. But he was like Ben Zobrist, if you remember Ben Zobrist. He was a guy, when you looked at him and you watched him play, and you're like, man, this guy isn't that good. But then you look up and he's got like seven or eight war, and you're like, how in the hell did that happen? Well, it's because he's above average as a hitter. He's above average as a a base runner. He's a good fielder. You know, and in Zobrist's case, he was a good fielder at multiple positions. You know, with Bobby Gritch, he was one of the best second basemen. He wasn't the best offensive second baseman in the American League. That would have been Frank White, you know, for most of his career. But, or Willie Randolph, but he was still good. He hit for power, not great power. He he walked, but not a ton, but he walked, you know, a lot for back then. Uh, he stole a few bases here and there. That's Chas McCormick. When you look at Chas McCormick, Chas McCormick is not Mike Trout. Chas McCormick is not Julio Rodriguez. Um, he's not any of those guys, but he is a guy that, you know, hits for a fairly decent average. Takes, you know, more than the average number of walks. He, you know, he's hit more than 20 home runs. He's got more than 10 steals. He is a above average defensive center fielder. He does everything reasonably well. And when you do everything reasonably well, you're a very good baseball player in terms of value. Who do you think has a higher OPS this season? Julio Rodriguez or Chas McCormick? Oh, it's Chas McCormick. Yep. It, it is. But, you know, Julio Rodriguez obviously has come on late. Off to a slow start. Got to yeah. a slow start. Julio, Julio is out homer Chas 31 to 22. Uh, Julio Rodriguez is hitting for a higher batting average by six points. He's 283 to 278. Um, but you know what? Chaz has a on-base percentage of 359. Julio's is, is 341. So you know what? Chaz gets on base. Julio's probably a little bit better defensively. He's a little bit got a little bit more power, and he's a star. But you know what? Chaz is a guy that you can probably sign for less and you can and you can put him in the outfield for 10 years and and know that you've got an above average outfielder who's going to hit you 20 25 homers a year and give you above average defense. One of the things that made me pause about, you know, when the question that I gave you over Dusty, you know, whether I want to miss the playoffs or have Dusty come back and um I was tracking the per 162 numbers. Now Granted, this is these are career averages. Have to throw that out there. But there really is only one player in this lineup who is not among the 10 best players at his position offensively, and that's Jeremy Pena. The only one. Now, obviously, that's, you know, Jose Abreu with some really good years in Chicago, kind of bolstering what he's producing right now. But he's a guy that, you know, if he had never gone on the DL, would be over 90 RBIs. So, I mean, it's about a year, but, you know, it's not a god-awful year. And this is the only, not only the only time, but going back to 2018, I think, this is the only team we're not losing anybody major. We're not losing anybody that you 
definitely don't want to lose. Your rotation's coming back. Your team minus Brantley's coming back. Your bullpen's coming back. And you've got a GM who's got an entire offseason to lock up some of those guys, maybe bring in a left fielder DH that can actually, you know, stay healthy for more than two weeks. Um, maybe sign an end of the rotation starter who can just eat innings in case, you know, you know, you have something like this happen. I'm actually eerily optimistic about next year's team more than I've ever been, which is kind of the weird thing with looking at where this team is right now at this minute. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're in we're in a good position for next year when when you look at the fact that you've you've still got Chaz, you've still got Tucker, you've still got Jordan, you've got Pena, you've got Altuve, Bregman, um, Diaz, and McCullers returning. You've got Garcia returning. Like, yeah, obviously the the team should be a contender next year, regardless of of what happens this year. Um, but yeah, when you're defending World Series champion, I want to go out and I want to defend my title. And that means getting into the playoffs. Um, I, I got to think Dusty's gone regardless, realistically. Like even if, you know, I'd be as happy as anybody if we were having another parade um, in November. But let's say that happens. I still think that's it. I still think even if Dusty wins another World Series this year, he's got to go. Like I, we've had enough. You know, it's been a fun ride. Dusty great end of your career and you know what we thought it last year i thought for sure he would go out on top and i don't know but that being said i i i would like to see some fresh blood i'd like to see um i'd like to see some some work being done to lock up some of these guys long term that deserve it kyle tucker deserves a long-term contract he's he's shown you that he is him Chaz mccormick deserves to be the center fielder of this team for the next five to ten years at least five Right. Like, I think I've seen enough that um, don't go spend big on him. You know, give him $10 million for the next, give him a 50 million to a five year, $50 million contract extension, buy out his arbitration years, and spend some money on Kyle Tucker. Right. Like, that seems like a pretty good deal for everybody. Chaz has $50 million in his pocket, and Kyle Tucker gets paid. And maybe we've got some money to, as you said, get a guy who can play left field and first base. Someone like what Chaz, uh, what Trey Mancini was supposed to do, um, but at the end of the day, we still have never, we haven't found that guy because Michael Brantley got money to rehab for all season. Yeah, well, I was gonna before we move on, I was gonna let you pay off on on your own question. So, if it's not Dusty, which manager drove you the most nuts? Oh, I hated Phil Garner. Absolutely hated Phil Garner. I, I thought his lineups were terrible. Um, I, I thought some of the decisions he made, like, I, I feel like he got so lucky on that world series run, you know, it just was luck ran out on him in, in the world series. But I, I just feel like, you know, he was, he was not a, a he was not good. I, I think you could look at like with an analytical view now or, or through, you know, the advanced statistics that we know today, like he, his lineups were bad. They were just bad. You know, we had no offense to speak of at, and then he got bailed out by pitching. Like we had the most unbelievably unbelievable one, two, three in baseball at that point. Right. When you had Oswald Pettit Clements and we were one of the lowest scoring offenses of all time. And it's, I don't know. I, I just, 
Um, I never liked Phil. Never liked Phil. Cecil Cooper. Cecil Cooper was pretty bad too. I, you know, and what's funny is, is that I can't remember why. I remember him being bad. I just, I couldn't. I mean, I was trying to rack my brain to, to remember what it was that drove, drove me nuts. Um, and I, Brad, I, Brad Mills was not great either. Well, but Brad Mills had nothing to work with. I mean, I think what bugged me about that team is you remember that team. So that was when uh, Ike came through. Because remember, we, we ended up having to play in Milwaukee against the Cubs, which was like 90. Yeah, we got no hit away. by Zambrano. Well, but what was funny is is that we were on a hot streak right before the the hurricane. Yeah, we might, we probably would have made the playoffs. I mean, you know, who knows? But I think we would have made the playoffs without that. But what's funny is is that that team uh, that that was those old the Tempura days, which he's the GM that drove me the most nuts. Yeah, he was awful. Uh, Tempura was terrible. And so, and what drove me nuts though is that it was like watching the modern day Chicago White Sox. It seems like we got fooled into thinking we were better than what we were. Oh, which, absolutely. Which would delayed the, the rebuilding. At and it least wasn't just Popero too. It was, it was Drayton. I mean, Drayton was, was the first one to be out there pumping it up that we're trying to win. And he's spending money to win when he goes out and signs Carlos Lee and all. He was just as bad as Tim Popero. Yeah. And, uh, Carlos Lee. So what's funny is Carlos Lee, he did the exact same thing that oh, he, he was did fine. before. Carlos Lee was not a problem. It was the fact that we had nothing around Carlos Lee. Like well, he tried to sell me the fact that Carlos Lee was going to bring us a, a World Series, and we had dog shit pitching. Well, he is very much like Jose Abreu. He was a guy that drove in a lot of runs, but he, he still had three hundred average well, for yeah, most of his career. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying, that. but I'm talking about if you look at Jose Abreu's career, they're fairly similar. I mean, they're they're guys who are driving in runs. Uh, they're professional hitters, you know, if we want to put that in air quotes. I mean, um, Carlos Lee's six years in Houston, he hit 286. He had 133 homers, and he drove in 533 runs. I mean, and that's with the last couple he of years had, he was here. He was well, the, the only thing in that lineup. Well, he was garbage the last year of that contract. Um, that's when we traded uh, him to the Marlins, I think. He um, was fine, actually. Uh, he was fine for us. He hit 287 for us with five homers. It was the year before. But the, I it was two years before. In 2010, he hit 246 uh, with 24 homers and, and 89 RBIs. But he averaged, he averaged about 100 RBIs a season in the first five years of the contract. Yeah, he was money. He led the league and yeah. he led the league in RBIs. I think at one point he led was, the league in sacrifice flies. He was he was. I want to say it was either the first or second year of the contract that he was actually among the league leaders and then got hurt late in the year. And yeah, first season it. with us. First season with us, he was a three hundred three hitter, uh, thirty two homers and one hundred nineteen runs driven in. Second season, he's a three fifteen hitter uh, with. Where is it? 28 homers and 100 runs driven in. Third season, 335 and 102. I mean, he was fine one of those, those first three years. One of those seasons, he was in the MVP conversation before um, he got hurt late and, and had to miss, like, the, I want to say, like, the last, maybe the last month Probably or three o- weeks. Oh, seven, he finished 19th uh, in the MVP voting. Um, so, kind of playing it on. So, um, your entertaining question, now that, you know, maybe Twitter slash X has kind of 
kind of going by the wayside, especially if uh, if Elon starts to uh, charge us ten dollars a month to, in order to to be abused on X. You brought up the question of which fan base would have been the worst with a Twitter or social media. Uh, I thought that was an interesting question. I definitely have an answer for that one, but I want to see what your answer would be first. I, I have a few. I have a few that I think are worthy of discussion. Right? I think the '90s Braves group would have been rough to deal with. Uh, just that run of success. Um, I, I think they would have, and they would have overplayed their success. Right? Like you only had one World Series, so. Um, would it have really been, you know, whatever. Uh, Yankees fans always are the worst to deal with in any situation. So I think they're going to be up there. The nineties Yankees fans. Um, I think nineties Bulls fans would have been, would have been a tough one to deal with. And then um, Cowboys fans in the nineties too would have been pretty rough. All right. So I'm going to go Cowboys fans in the nineties. Cause I actually lived through that. So I went to, uh, I started TCU in the fall of 93. So I finished in the winter of 96. So I'm there throughout their, their whole Super Bowl runs. And let me tell you, you know, so I'll give you a perfect example here. Texas Stadium had that hole in the roof. Now, do you want to know why that hole was there? Oh, so God can watch his football team, obviously. Yeah, and that's what they said. And I would just retch every time that would happen. But the thing that made that whole time period is, you know, they had the three Super Bowls in four years. Okay, congratulations. Good job, guys. But just the sheer number of criminals. Michael Irvin busted for cocaine. Uh, Nate Newton busted for pot twice. Now, this is my favorite part, and, I, and I'm probably going to get the amounts wrong. But it was something ridiculous, like 300 pounds of pot in the trunk of his car. Like he, And then like six months later, it was like 220 pounds. And the joke we were telling up there was like Nate Newton was going to read a book, uh, write a book of how to go from 300 pounds to 220 pounds in six months. <laughs> and uh, But I mean, just this year, I mean, Barry Switzer, you know, trying to smuggle a gun in an airport. I mean, just stuff you can't make up. I mean, it's like back in the 80s whenever the Oilers, I don't know if you heard of Lad Herzog, uh, GM or he mooned somebody at one of the, uh, at a wedding party or something. I mean, just absolute crazy stuff, but I don't know. So what's hard is to... On the other side of things, though, who would you have wanted to have a Twitter? Like looking back on it, like I think the We Are Family Pirates would have been a really, really fun fan base to to have like teams that made a magical run, right? Like like the Detroit Tigers the year the riots were happening and they and they win the World Series. Um or like the the year that the, the Dodgers and, and the A's are in the World Series and there's a, and there's an earthquake. Like the, there would have been some fun sports moments I would have loved to have like been able to read some tweets from. Yeah, I think the Dodgers from that eighty eight I mean, because the A's and, and I, I don't I mean, you obviously weren't watching that. Um, but but like Bash Brothers yeah, A's? Yeah, like, no, could you imagine those but, fans on Twitter? Well, no, but I'm saying those A's teams were so heavily favored in that World Series. I mean, it was just ridiculous how, how favored they were. 
in that World Series. Um, and that would have been good to see them cry because they went through a three-year period. So they won in 89, but then they go back in 1990. They're heavily favored again, and they lose to the Reds. So, I mean, that's a three-year period where you're like, well, how in the hell does this happen? So I guess here's my question, though. So Astros Twitter obviously is a thing now. It's hard for us as Astros fans but how do you think we stack up in terms of, you know, the people who are maybe the more annoying members of our herd? You know, where do you think Astros Twitter stacks up in that whole deal? I think other people find us annoying. Absolutely. But, God, I feel like we're right, though. Like, I feel, I you know, I feel like we are the wrongly persecuted. And as a that, that has what formed Astros Twitter, right? Like, I feel like. We were probably a more debaggy Twitter before like 2020 when all the stuff comes out um, from fires. More like when Tobman was doing his thing and and we go get Osuna. You know, we were not great as a fan base on Twitter at that point. And I think a lot of the hate was justified from a lot of people. But like people that get hate, like Michael Schwab, like I follow that guy. I think he's a fantastic follow. A yeah. lot of people, a lot of people don't like him. A lot of th- people think he's a douche. But like, but then, uh, do you follow A's Rants on Twitter? Uh, A's Rants? Yeah, it's called A's Rants. It's no. a very sarcastic A's fan who is absolutely heroic. Like, anytime the A's win, he starts talking mad shit. And, but he's doing it all tongue-in-cheek. We'll be like, what a garbage team this was. The A's handled them easily tonight. Like, it's, it's absolutely – those are the kind of ones that I enjoy, right? Like, the Yankees fans who just hop on and start saying, bang a trash can anytime the Astros do anything. Like, that's not fun. Like, that's not fun for anybody. What what does that give you? I like a good back and forth of, like, sarcastic tongue-in-cheek comments versus I'm just going to, like, blow this one up by telling this guy, go bank a trash can, cheater. See, I like the people. I've been interacting with some of these folks, you know, and that's what I miss about Twitter. And I haven't been on Twitter nearly as much as I used to be. But um, there, there have been some folks in the fan base that I was with, you know, interacting with before you know the whole trash can thing came out like the a guy i can think of uh, just the, the handle thicky don which is oh know, yeah he's fantastic i love him um there's a guy another guy h-o-u counterpart co-pilot i can't um but he, he has like the the avatar has like the long hair with the astros cap oh, i yeah. think he's i think he's from pasadena we we go back and forth i mean and let me, uh, let me tell you a quick story about how great Astros Twitter is, okay? Um, two years ago, 2021, I am living alone, you know, scrolling Twitter one night. I'm scrolling Facebook, and I see this post about from a mom who's, you know, bringing her daughter to an Astros game, um, and her dad's getting home from the military. Who do you think you know, who should we reach out to on the Astros to try and like do something? I'd like to get good seats for them. And I hop on Twitter and I reached out to Lance McCullers Jr. And Lance McCullers Jr. set everything up to do a surprise reveal with this girl and her dad in a pregame ceremony. And it, you know, um, it got out that I was the one who set that up and um, you know, Brian Schwab reached out to me and, and asked like, Hey, is this really true? Did you do this? I was like, yeah, like, why not? 
Like, I know Lance McCullers is the kind of guy that loves Houston and would do that thing. And I know that we have a social media base that would actually get involved. And and that's why I love Astros Twitter. Like, it is a phenomenal place when it's not being invaded by assholes. Yeah, so this is uh, the guy I was talking about, uh, Archbishop Deshays. Oh, he's good. He's um, good, too. And, uh, and I love, you know, I'm looking at a tweet right now where I just did a search. James Click is sitting on his porch tonight, rolling a fat blunt and having a good chuckle at the 2023 Houston Astros. I mean, that's a solid, that's a solid tweet right there. It is. Uh, and, oh, and he was, he was wrong on Myers though. I mean, we'll, we can sit here and all agree that he's wrong on Jake Myers. Oh yeah. And, and, but you know, to me, yeah, that, that to me, it's, it's the ability to, you know, to take it, you know, as good as you give. I mean, that's what makes some of these fan bases just can't seem to pull it off. You know, like yeah, I think Astros Dodger, fans can take it. Like, right, Dod- we've taken it on the chin for for five years. But you know what? Like, we're going to give it back to you. The like, Dodgers like fans. Rangers fan, like Rangers fans, I think are the worst because Rangers fans want to come in hot, but the moment you come back at them with anything, they are just done. Like, they're just oh fuck you. You know, like it turns vulgar at that point when when you casually point out that you know they got in trouble for some really disgusting hazing stuff. Like if you want to, you know, throw stones, maybe don't live in a glass house. The worst Twitter battle I had was with a Rangers fan. And that was back during Harvey. And you remember how we requested to switch series with the Rangers? Oh yeah. And they refused. And so I was just like, well, and he's guy, well, it's going to, you know, it's going to interrupt their, you know, their wild card chase because it's, they're going to have to play, you know, games on the road at the end or something like that. And I said, okay, how many home games do y'all have now? He's like 81. And I said, so if we switch series, how many home games will you have? 81. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> yep. And, I got told it was, be- hey, there's, there were groups sold. Okay, there are people who are expecting to have a group outing. Like, well, we had people expecting to have electricity, and they don't have that anymore. So, fuck your group. Well, the one thing I would have done that I think would have been absolutely uh, the PR thing would have been huge was have the game actually held at Round Rock and just say, hey, if you can produce a Houston driver's license, you get in free. Because we were, you know, we went to my, my parents' condo uh, during that whole thing. Um, and so, you know, we actually went up there and we um, we would have gotten in. That would have been, that was back with, uh, that, that wasn't Harvey, that was Ike. But it would have been perfect. You know, hey, go to Round Rock, show a Houston uh, driver's license, get in free. But no, we had to screw around, do all this kind of other stuff. But yeah, Rangers fans, Dodger fans are really bad. About, you Dodgers know, fans are awful, but they yeah. are just awful people. So I think those are all good calls. I think the worst ones would have been probably Yankees fans from like, say, 1920 to 1964. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're right in the World Series like every other year. And you're just like, come on. Could you imagine like Mickey Mantle sightings on Twitter, though? Like, could you imagine like somebody is in whatever uh, uh, cabana copa cabana right and there's like hey here's mickey Mantle with two chicks around yeah. his arm that aren't his wife like it would have been oh or boston had some boston celtics fans 1960s you know when they won like every year 
That would have been yeah. that would have been pretty rough. Showtime Lakers would have been annoying yeah. as hell. Um, yeah, that was. I don't know who I was. You know, when I pl- watched those games, I didn't even know who to root for. Uh, and, the, and the Lakers, Lakers Celtics ones. I mean, they were entertaining as hell. Those series were entertaining as hell. But I didn't know who to root for. It was that was a tough. A Utah tough Jazz fans would have been pretty rough in the yeah. in the nineties. I speaking of great Twitter falls though, Vernon Maxwell. Oh, if you don't yeah. follow Vernon, he continues to roast Jazz fans. Just every now and then, he'll just throw out a tweet about how much he hates Salt Lake City, and it's just gold. All right, Tim. I know you had an extra scumbag this week that we were actually going to team up on. So yeah. we have a we have three to offer you this week. So Tim's going to have his own. I'm going to have my own, and then we're going to have a joint scumbag. Do you want to do the, the joint one first, Scott, or do that, you want to? That sounds move? like a that sounds like a good plan. We'll go ahead and do that. So let me set the stage on on how this this scumbag came to be. We had a uh, a school dedication ceremony for my wife's new school that opened up on Sunday, and so that meant myself, my wife, the baby, Sawyer, were all up at the school, and as babies do, mine. Need a diaper change. And this just so happened to be a shitty diaper. And so I go to change it. And unfortunately, this one was a little sloppy. So I, you know, you get a little bit on your hands sometimes. It happens. So I go to wash my hands. And I, you know, hit the paper towel thing. And out comes the shitty brown paper towel of your nightmares that I needed like five yards of it just to get my hands clean. And it's just like my wife's district is one of the top districts in Texas. They have, they just built a ridiculously expensive new school. It is first class all the way, top of the line, anything you could need. And what are we doing with the shitty brown paper towel? We've had we've had advancements in paper towel technology. We've got the quicker picker upper from Bounty. We've got everything that you could possibly imagine. But for some reason, this company, what was the name of it, Scott, that we came up with? It was Coastwide Professional Recycling, is holding school districts hostage across America with shitty paper towels. Okay, so a couple of interesting points there. Uh, Everybody remembers the toilet paper shortage during the pandemic. Um, I went to the store several times looking for toilet paper. I was actually shopping for my parents at one point, and that was the only thing I was going to buy, and they were making us wait in line because they would only send in like four or five people at a time into the HEB. And so I finally get to the end of the line. I go in the store and I was like, there's no toilet paper. And I was like, I went to the people outside. I said, really, you need to, you know, make an announcement that you're out of certain things because some of us are only here for the toilet paper. Reason why there was a shortage is because there is a difference between this toilet paper that's made for the offices. That's like really razor thin and the toilet paper we buy for our homes. And so all of a sudden you have people staying at home and the toilet paper companies are literally like their, their margins are razor thin on this. And so they are all of a sudden producing like half their toilet papers like that industrial crap and nobody's going to work. And so now all of a sudden everybody wants to buy the home stuff. 
And it's just so not this, available. This brings to light a bigger conspiracy then, Scott, is why do we not get good toilet paper at work? God forbid you you want us to work in office buildings. God forbid you give us some nice toilet paper to wipe our ass with. You want to know why we work from home? Because we buy the good shit at home. We got Cottonelle. We I have a bidet. It's lovely. Okay, but I gotta go to the office on Tuesdays. What do I get? One ply. Yeah. Although, oh my gosh. You know my favorite saying, Scott. And I'm sorry to keep interrupting you. The boss makes a dollar. I make a dime. That's why I take my shits on company time. You know, so you were mentioning the individual ply. That was back in the that was back in the quote unquote good old days when you didn't have rolled toilet paper and you had to pull out each individual square and just kind of bunch it together. Now, when I first started teaching, I taught uh, with chalkboards. So I don't know if you've ever actually, you know, so chalkboard. So I'm going into the bathroom, getting these brown paper towels that you were describing, and I'm having to like wet them because I'm I'm having every once in a while I have to wipe down my chalkboard because you can't read anything after a while. Right, but the problem is these particular paper towels are not absorbent. No, they no. are they are like a fucking scuba suit. They no. are water. It beads off of it. Oh no no no. And and what was funny is this was my second year teaching. So I'm in Pasadena high school, my second year teaching, I'm going into the bathroom and I'm pulling out like a ridiculous, you know, bunch of paper towels. And one of the older teachers, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm getting paper towels. What's it look like I'm doing? He thought I was a student. So he's sitting there just yelling well, at me. Well, you know what? If you were a student, that'd be the amount that you need. Because yeah. they are dog shit paper towels. So you know what? The whole industry, the whole Toilet paper industry, there are scumbags, our joint scumbags, Scott, because God forbid we get a quality product away from home. God forbid our corporate overlords are able to supply us quality toilet paper instead of the giant roll of sandpaper. Like just just make just make one kind of toilet paper and it feels good. Instead of, hey, at work you get crap, but you know, when you buy it yourself, you get the good stuff. Like, no, just everybody gets good toilet paper. What what would that what what bad could happen? What what wheels of commerce would shut down if people did not get as many hemorrhoids from crappy work toilet paper? Well, here's your problem, Tim. Your problem is is that we gotta we gotta pinch pennies wherever we can, you know? Uh, and this is what I love. So uh, our governor, beloved governor, Greg Abbott, he wants his property tax cut. As you well know, the cost for educating students is not going down. It's going up on a per student basis. And we have more kids. So if you're taking in less money, <laughs> we got to cut some corners here somewhere. I mean, I'm surprised they haven't given us like old magazines just said, you know, good luck. <laughs> Cause I mean, that's what they were doing in world war two. So, you know, that's, you know, Hey, I guess we're lucky, Tim. Maybe we, we, it's, we it's to- actually kind of frustrating too, Scott, because the cost per student should be going down, right? Like with the amount of technology that we have today, does every kid really need a textbook for every subject or is there enough good 
you know, subscription-based services online that you sub- you can subscribe to oh. as a school. Wait. Like, why are we still wasting money on that? Oh, we why? haven't used because, a book in years. We haven't used but a textbook. But you still buy them. You still have to subscribe. Like, hand them out. Like, the kids still get textbooks. Like, we, yeah, they get Chromebooks and that other stuff, too, but... But they still get them. Our stuff is mainly online. I don't know that we have we don't have too many textbooks that we're handing out. But all right, so I think we we've uh, we've wagged in the quagmire the crap long enough, you know. So who is your individual scumbag? I'm just gonna kind of group a a few people together here because there's been a collection of right wing shitheads who have decided to target Travis Kelsey for some reason. I don't get it. You know, the guy is pretty likable. I mean, I I don't have many negative things to say about either of the Kelsey brothers. They seem to be pretty good people. Um, The reason they've targeted him is because he was in a Bud Light ad, a supported Bidenomics and he um, supported the vaccine. And and now he's dating Taylor Swift, so he's becoming more and more popular outside of the world of football. Like, why do we need to tear this guy down? He is fun. He is everything that's right with the game of football today. And you know what? Like, he called this shot with Taylor Swift, and he went out and made it happen. So, like, at the end of the day, all these people that are trying to tear this guy down are the same people who are out there claiming cancel culture when you're literally telling on Twitter Nick Adams, by the way, is the guy's name, that he should rip his own dick off and hand it to Joe Biden because he doesn't need it anymore. What the fuck is wrong with you? Because you know what? You're going to make you've made money off that tweet. You got enough reaction from people. I didn't respond. I didn't share. I didn't do anything because I don't want to feed into it. But like, is that? That's how these people make their money, Scott. Like, they literally say outrageous, stupid shit. They pay Elon 10 bucks a month so they can have a little check mark next to their name. And they get paid to be fucking assholes. And in this situation, you're just a scumbag. Like, everybody in America is amped for Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. It is, like, the most talked about thing in the world right now that Travis Kelsey is possibly, you know, hanging out with T-Swift. And this guy wants to turn it into a let's cancel Travis Kelsey. Yeah, the guy you mentioned there, I think uh, you mentioned uh, Clay Travis. This Clay uh, Travis and Nick Adams are the two. Yeah, guys. and he's oh. he is of uh, outkick the coverage fame. Uh, but you know, you see him on a lot of different things. Like you see him in sports commentary. You see him. I've he came se- up as Jim Rome's producer. Um, I've seen him on uh, you know gambling shows. You know, for you know, for sports gambling, which you know to me is is the biggest you know bunch of hypocrisy that you'll ever want to meet. You know that the NFL sitting there saying, "Here, we're going to hitch our wagon to DraftKings. You know, we're going to take their millions." But oh, random player on the Lions, you bet on the Ryder Cup, you're suspended first season. <laughs> it's like, what are we what are we doing? But yeah, you know, I there's like a whole cottage industry of people who go straight from like ESPN to Fox News. Like uh Will Kane, like I'm sure you've heard of him. He's now he used to be on ESPN. He's now on Fox News. Uh you hear uh Clay Travis. Uh, it's because it's easy. 
It is honestly easy. They just want someone who could speak in competent sentences, and they just say, go out there and say outrageous shit. That's, that's all you have to – you don't have to believe it. You don't have to have any facts. You can literally just be like, hey, go out there and uh, say the most outrageous shit you can, but like, don't stumble and, and trip over your words while you do it. Yeah, but basically uh, – so Clay Travis, he, was, he made his bones really during the pandemic politically. Just being, you know, one of the most virulent anti-vaxxers, you know, out there, really anti anything that was uh, that was going on, you know, at the time, you know, in terms of like Fauci or anything like that. So, sticking with the right wing theme, my my uh, scumbag is going to be a little bit late and a dollar short on this. I admit, folks. We've had a backlog here at the Snapbook. Tommy Tuberville, a former football coach at the University of Auburn. Uh, he is definitely the stereotype of the old guy who used to play without a helmet uh, or the leather helmet days because he is absolutely the dumbest member of the United States Senate. And it's not even really close. So why is he the scumbag? He's a scumbag because he is holding up around 300 military promotions. Now, the one reason I was able to gather from him is because some of the pilots were reciting poetry. So I guess that makes them woke. Now, and how do we know that this is politically motivated? They were able to get, you know, uh, through a procedural method, they were able to get three of them uh, to come before the full body. He voted for them. He voted for them to get their promotion. So it isn't about whether or not these people are worthy of a promotion. And, and the thing is, is that their, their pay is tied to their position, to their rank. Uh, I mean, the worst thing you can be in the armed forces is a private. I mean, in terms of pay, I mean, that, that's horrible. I mean, you want to get bumped up the ranks. That's why people go to college first. They join ROTC in college because they want to start off as an officer because the officers are the ones that get paid. So here are these, these career soldiers who are working their way up the ranks. And I think the, the biggest salary out of all of them for the generals, I want to say was like $220,000 a year. That's a lot of money. But let's consider that some of these guys could be captains of industry, you know, for, you know, for some of these corporations and probably get 10 times that much easily. But they choose to, to serve their country and get what I think all of us would agree is a very comfortable salary, but not like what our CEOs and, and our other captains of industry get. So what is, what's he doing? He's holding up these people's promotions. He's holding up their promotions. Not only are you keeping them from getting paid, but you're also making our military less ready because these are positions that people need to be filled, but they're not filling them. So I know you're, I'm a little late on this, Tim, but Tommy Tuberville is my scumbag. Yeah, he's he's a piece of shit. He's been a piece of shit for a long time. Um, I, I don't understand the idea of voting a unsuccessful college football coach into Senate, but you know this is America where dreams come true. So it is what it is. That's what happens when you have bad candidates. You get people like this who um, can capitalize on 
you know, for him an opportunity to, to make a name for himself. But let's not forget, you know, I, I would consider songwriting a form of poetry, would you not? A, a song is a poem set to music? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, National Anthem. Our Star Spangled Banner. Written while at war. A soldier wrote that song. There have been plenty of poems and songs and all sorts of things throughout the history of time written by soldiers. You are sitting there for a long fucking time. I, I just finished watching the Pacific and, and Band of Brothers. Those guys sat and wrote. You're in a foxhole for hours on end. Like, what do you do to keep yourself sane? You do a little writing. You do a little singing. What, you know, what? it's it's coming from a guy who... It, this is this new incel culture that has taken over the, the Republican Party, right? This uber-masculinity thing that, like, men can't be into poetry. And a real men are the ones who are in the military. So the idea that they're reciting poetry in the military means they're not real men. And if they're not real men, they can't serve and protect this country, right? Like, that's literally what it comes down to for this guy. When, God forbid, somebody educates themselves, right? Like, God forbid somebody who is a trained soldier also likes to read, loves the classics, maybe wants to read the Odyssey, an epic poem. Maybe they enjoy fucking Beowulf. I don't know. But God forbid you have educated soldiers because it means maybe they think for themselves. Maybe they aren't going to be just follow orders, guys. I don't know. But really what it is, is that insult, super masculine, Andrew Tate bullshit that's taken over the Republican Party. You know, I have a funny uh, line here in a minute, but you, you consider, you know, in addition to those people, where did Ernest Hemingway do his most of his writing? Uh, World War One. Where did George Orwell do most of his writing? Probably uh, World War One. World War Two. He was World a War two, but yeah, yeah, he was a information officer for uh, the British. In fact, uh, he was stationed in India for a while. That was one of his first writings. Was something that he saw happen there. But you mentioned- all these guys too, like a band of brothers in the Pacific, and all these great war movies and doc in documentaries that have come out. They only exist because the soldiers wrote shit down. The soldiers wrote stuff down so they could then go and write their memoirs later on. You mentioned the term incel. So we mentioned one of my teachers I was working with, you know, was mentioning incel to the kids. And so, you know, and, and trying to see if they knew what it was. And, um, and so one of the girls in class said, uh, an incel is a discord game moderator. And I was just like, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're absolutely not wrong on that, on that front. Um, but for the, for the older members of our audience, we'll just say an incel is an involuntary celibate is, is what the, uh, the phrase stands for. Cause um, my, my family, God love them. I own one of the shirts that one of the people are wearing in those progressive commercials, you know, where you become the people that become their parents. And so I was wearing it while they were watching the commercial and they looked at me and they just started laughing. It's one of the golf shirts. The guy, like, I think it was that one where the guy's actually buying the same shirt that he's actually currently wearing. And I was, I've wearing, done that. I was, I wanted just in case you need another one in case you get a stain or something. You really I like was, the shirt. And I was wearing that exact shirt while that commercial was on and they were just laughing at me. So, um, yeah, I have, I have two versions of two different shirts. Like, 
Costco had them on sale after I'd already bought them. I'm like, well, I know I like this shirt, so I'm going to buy it again. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I think I do have at least one shirt that's a duplicate, I think, but it's a solid color. So, I mean, it's not so bad, but... As long as uh, you don't wear it on back-to-back days, people don't question you. But that's what what's funny is, is how people uh, people getting like all the, the little text abbreviations that people get wrong. Like there was a woman who thought LOL meant lots of love, and so like somebody you know said like their cousin had died, and so she sent out like LOL, and like somebody's like, "What the hell are you laughing out loud? You <laughs> know what are you doing?" Um, I think I heard somebody who thought that BFF was best friend's funeral. As you can imagine, sorry, I can't come to the party. BFF. <laughs> I'm a BFF. Um, but those commercials, those are some good commercials. Whoever came up with the writing for those is pretty damn good. Always been fun. Well, Scott, speaking of fun, this has been a blast. Um, really enjoyed, um, doing this with you and you know seeing as we are a golf podcast did want to share a little bit of golf news um i saw my first hole in one live this weekend uh was was playing around with with my father-in-law and um he hit he hit the iron shot on the perfect part of the slope of the green and this thing rolled and then it stopped rolling and the ball was gone and i gotta say he had the calmest reaction to a hole in one i'd ever seen he was walking with a push cart, and if this was me, I'm hauling ass down to the green to go check my hole. He took the slowest, calmest walk. You would have thought he he missed the fair, he missed the green thirty yards right, and he had to go get up and down. He slowly walks up to the cup, looks in, balls in the hole. Then he starts going crazy. But I had, I'd never seen one before. Um, coolest thing I've ever seen on a golf course, man. I, I uh, couldn't be happier for him. I lipped out a putt on 18 for one under. I ended up shooting even par that day. Um, but it, the highlight of the day went went to uh, my father-in-law with, again, the first hole-in-one I'd, I'd ever seen in person. I've never yeah, I've never seen one, and I've never um, – but actually we had – we've had two at the Golfathon. And are you familiar with the whole idea of a ramble, I guess, or a shamble? A shamble, yeah. yes. Where you know you take your tea, the best tee shot, yeah. So the hole in one is the best tee shot. Oh, so, so everybody gets a one. Well, no, it's a net score. So he had, he had two strokes, so he's a negative oh, one. Oh God, he's a negative one, and like so, one other person in the group's a negative one. So they were like a negative two on that hole. Um, but the best shot that I that I've ever had personally, I've never had a hole in one, but uh, number. Five on the Harbor Nine at Sasha Harbor. It's that short par four with like the water in front. Yeah. I hold out a wedge. Nice. So that was, you know, that's the closest thing I could have, you know, to a hole in one. So uh, that was, you know, a pretty cool moment. I think I've hit the pin once, but, you know, it's just something, it's, it's kind of weird. I, I we, we had a guy that went to the Golfathon who had two of them in one year. I've been playing my whole life. I've never had one. So it's yeah, kind of I've weird. Been playing, I've been playing golf for more than 20 years. I've been playing golf for 23 years. I've never had one. Uh, that was my father-in-law's first. He's been playing for 30 years at least. And so, hey, you know, 10 more years, maybe I'll get one. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I 
I keep grinding. One day it'll happen for me. But uh, you know, his his pastor was there with us in the in the group, and it was on Saturday. And I said, uh, "Hey, are you giving the sermon tomorrow?" Because I, I could think of a great way you could say, "Hey, I saw God in person on the golf course today." Yeah, that's true. Um, maybe your maybe your father in law was upset that he had to buy a, a round for everybody. Maybe that was it. I didn't uh, even make him buy me a drink. I uh, I said, "Hey, why don't you you can buy a shot for your daughter later?" And, and say that was it. All right, Tim, where can the good folks find you? You can always find the show on Facebook at the Snaphook Podcast. Uh, as of now, we're on Twitter slash X, Tim underscore Costello 10. Um, and at some point, you know, Scott keeps inviting me to join his sub stack as a contributor. So um, at some point here in the next month or so, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting something started there as well. Yeah. The great thing about Substack, and, you know, I hate to give them free plugs, but you know, they've allowed me to set up separate sections. And so that's how I always wanted to do something like that because I, I do my, uh, my baseball stats, baseball stats and politics. That didn't mix, but now I have, you know, my own section. I, I am on Twitter for now. At Esparzilla, I'm on uh, Threads, and I really need to spend more time there. I think I, I, I haven't been doing a good job cultivating that audience, but definitely you can access the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can access it on Spotify and on the Substack. So lots of different places to find it. Yeah, we had a little issue with with Apple Podcasts. Scott tried to get technical on us, get the podcast uploaded to to. Uh... Substack, but but things are backing up and working after I uh, got on the horn with with Apple and, and got things taken care of. So if you're an Apple listener, you got a couple episodes at a time last week, um, but we're back and running now. But we appreciate everybody who has joined us this week and joins us every week as we hope to be one of the best parts of your week. We will see you next week on the Snapbook. <laughs> Thank you for tuning into the Snap Book and making Scott and I a part of your week. Wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and his outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snap Book movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snap Book.